Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. It is a pleasure to get to preach to you this morning from God's Word. And if you would, please open with me to Psalm chapter 10. As Jody mentioned, this is the conclusion of our psalm series. Well, the first of hopefully more psalm series. We've gotten through, after today, we'll have gotten through one-fifteenth of the psalms. Um, which is a good start, and God has been working and teaching us through it. Um, and so let's read Psalm 10. Listen as I read it from God's Word. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, in the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. So we have here a powerful conclusion to the first ten psalms of Scripture. And I want us to take away three things today. Okay, so the first thing is this prayer that we just read is appropriate for today. Okay, very simple. This prayer is a prayer for today. The second thing is 
that it is a prayer of faith. It doesn't just accurately talk about things that are happening today. This is a prayer that is prayed in faith by the psalmist. Okay? And the third thing is that you must pray this prayer with the psalmist. That you must pray it as well. Now the first thing, that this is an appropriate prayer for today. Um, the first thing, I just want to give thanks for the work that our musicians have been doing in setting these psalms to worship and leading us in singing them. Because there have been a couple moments, this is one of them, the first time I experienced this was maybe Psalm 6 when we sang it together at the summer conference, if you remember. You know, we start a worship song and the band starts playing and then the words that pop up on the screen for me to sing are, Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Don't destroy me in your wrath. I'm like, wait a second. That's not supposed to be in a worship song. What, Psalm 6? And then you go look at Psalm 6 and it's a direct quote from verse 1 of Psalm 6. And yet that sort of thing you never see in worship music that the church sings today. It's just absent. There are other Psalms projects going on out there. Even ones that I like that have good Psalms. But the pattern that I've seen is they cherry pick you know, they'll do Psalm 23 and Psalm 130 and ones that can easily be, you know, received in a comfortable way if you sing it the right way. But as we go through these first 10 Psalms, we're immediately hit over and over again with that possibly how we think and how we worship God is not in accord with his word. That becomes very clear as we hit Psalm 10. As well, even in the first line. And this is another one where our musicians have taken the first line verbatim, and that's what we sing. And that first line is, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Again, I can't think of any other song that has that sentiment. You don't ask God why he's far away, you're only allowed to proclaim that God is near. That salvation has come, that God is just right under your nose, just waiting for you to seek a personal relationship with Him, right? But the psalmist says, why do you stand afar off? Why do you stand away at a distance, Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And we immediately have to acknowledge that God, by His own will, has hidden Himself. For some reason. But we do want him to be near. And this proceeds and tells us why. So we're working through this. Why this is an appropriate prayer for today. And much of the reason it's appropriate for today. Is because this describes the wickedness of our day. This psalm more than anything else. The day that we live in. The culture that we live in. The sin that we are surrounded by, this should be our psalm that we know and is ours. And we're going to be, as Stephen said, looking through the lens of the wickedness of abortion and the murder of innocent children because it is the present reality of the day that we live in and the blood that is on our hands. And so we see the description of the wicked and the very first thing that the psalmist says, he says... In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. And we think, well, I don't know anybody like that. 
right? I don't know anybody who's, you know, seems like they're bent on taking advantage of people or killing anybody or lurking around dark corners. All the people I know are, you know, nice people and they try to do good things for people. They're not hotly pursuing anybody that's weak and helpless. But I want to open up for you that this is really happening. It's been becoming more and more evident in the media with the new revelations about what Planned Parenthood has been doing, the wickedness that is going on behind closed doors. If you've seen one of the most recent videos, I believe the sixth video that was released, there's an account from an employee who was hired to collect organs from aborted children. And she describes a doctor who she had encounters with, an abortionist. And this is what she says. She says, I didn't know a lot about Dr. Berman, other than he worked with Planned Parenthood. There were actually comments made about him. He had a reputation for going viciously fast. If we didn't watch him, we would lose our specimens. And she's talking about the hearts and the livers of the children that she was collecting. If we didn't watch him, we would lose our specimens. It was that fast. If there wasn't a girl in the room, I'm pretty sure she means someone, a pregnant woman. If there wasn't a girl in the room, he would get mad. He would pace the hallways if there wasn't something to do. It's almost like he wanted to do it. To me, this is maybe the most disturbing thing, even more disturbing than seeing the parts of children, is this reality of the wickedness that is driving this practice. And we see that the wicked do indeed hotly pursue the afflicted. The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. I don't think there's a better description of our culture than that we boast in our heart's desire. That the greatest good that you can do is to follow your heart, right? That is what we're taught in our movies, in our media, from the government. It's that following your heart is the most important thing that you do. You know, I was looking at pictures of my niece's really cute kindergarten graduation ceremony. I don't remember ever having a graduation ceremony when I was in kindergarten, but they do that sort of thing, and up plastered across behind the stage is, you know, the thing that your kids need to know, which is follow your dreams, right? That's the important thing that our kindergartners really need to come away with. Follow your dreams, right? This is... What we think, morality, this is our standard, is that what's really important is that you follow your heart. People even said this to me. When I told people I wasn't going to go be a professional musician, I said, I'm, I'm going to go be a pastor. They said, oh, well, that's really good for you. You know, I'm glad that you're doing what you, you think you should do. And the only thing driving it is just you and what your heart's desire is. But look at the wickedness that this opens up. Because when the heart's desire is money and the greed of wickedness and the lust for the blood of innocence, we have nothing to stand on to fight this wickedness because we boast of our heart's desire and think that that is what we live for, is to follow our hearts and our own desires. 
And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. This is greed. Don't be fooled and deceived about the things that are going on. This is for money. Have you seen the car that the abortion doctor, the abortionist, drives to the clinic? It's a nice car. (laughs) Why do you think they have a nice car? Because they make a lot of money doing the work that they do. They make money by tearing apart children in their mother's wombs. It is driven by greed and the heart's desire. And our hearts are wicked. And the wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And here we see... This theme popping up all throughout the psalm. You see, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Later, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And then again, he has said to himself, you will not require it. This is driving this wickedness. A denial of God is driving this wickedness. And we must understand that at the root of this, The clearly wicked thing that's going on on the surface is a denial of God and a denial of His justice. Um, And it's pervasive, even in the church, even amongst Christians, this denial of God's authority and His existence. Um, And the example I have of this is this last year, there was an event on campus put on by a number of Christian organizations. Um, It was a forum where what they do is they find a a Christian professor from Harvard or something that has a lot of credentials and credibility. And they bring them onto campus, and so they brought this professor onto campus at IU so that he could debate um, with an atheist professor. Though they made it very clear that it wasn't actually a debate and that there was no battle or conflict going on. Um, And the question of the event was, is faith in God reasonable? Okay. Now understand how much that gives away already. Is that to us, the basic assumption is not believing in God. That's, you know, we know that's reasonable. But, you know, those people, those crazies who believe in God, is, are they reasonable? But we come to God's word and it tells us that the thoughts of the fool are there is no God. If you look ahead to Psalm 14, that's what it says. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And then it tells us why the fool says that. Because he has committed abominable deeds and has given himself to wickedness. And that's what causes him to say there is no God. He does not want to be judged by God, so he has declared that God is blind. He has declared that God doesn't exist. And so at this event, you have this Christian professor interacting, dialoguing with the atheist professor. And the Christian professor is talking about God and the kind of God that he believes in. He's professing to be a Christian. And he creates this category that he wants to make sure that nobody thinks that he's in. And it's this category over here of, and you know, Zeus was his example, you know, mythical, mythological gods over here that he classified as, quote-unquote, wrathful deities. Okay? And so he set up the category with a Greek god that we all know that's silly. But he labeled it as wrathful deities over here that he didn't have anything to do with. Which, of course, Satan uses to plant in everyone's mind that when I come to Scripture and see God being wrathful, 
well, God's in that category. I don't have that kind of a God. And everything that we do that is taught, even by Christians in the public square, is to undercut God's authority and God's justice that he will bring to account the shedding of innocent blood. And this is the only hope of the wicked, is that there is no God. And so they proclaim that mantra to themselves over and over again, that there is no God in hopes that he will not hold them to account. And for a time they prosper. We see in verse 5, his ways, the wicked's ways, prosper at all times. Your judgments, God's judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. And you see the snorting of the wicked as they lord their freedom of choice to kill children. And they snort at the backwards bigots and woman haters, right, who are fighting for the lives of unborn, the unborn. And at this point, what's going on is we're being snorted at for speaking out for the unborn and ridiculed and mocked. And for a time, the wicked seems to prosper. And he says to himself, I'll not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. Has anybody ever had an experience where you had your life flash before your eyes? I know you probably all heard that saying. Some of you have had an experience where you feel like that actually happened in a moment. You just saw your life kind of disappear before you. I have, in my life so far, I've had one experience like that. Um, and it was over towards Terre Haute. Have you guys ever been to the big cats preserve that's over there? They have like wild cats like lions and, and I don't know what else they have out there. But um, we were visiting there one time on a field trip. I was in high school or middle school. I don't remember. Um, and we were walking around one of these enclosures with a big fence around it, and inside the fence was just, you know, a big field of tall grasses. It looked kind of like the African savanna. Um, And we were walking along this fence, just looking to see if we could see anything, and there was nothing. It was just a big, empty, open field. And as I stepped closer to the fence to look, boom, out of nowhere, a lion just appeared on the other side of the fence, out of the grass, lunging at the fence. And that was a point that my life, I felt that feeling. It was like, I think I saw childhood scenes (laughs) as this lion that I was utterly unaware of just appeared. You know, several hundred pounds of meat and teeth and malice (laughs) appeared in my face. And if that fence had not been there, I would have been dead. And this is the picture that God uses to show us the traps of the afflicted. And we have to have our eyes open to it. Because this is a perfect description of the wickedness that is going on around us. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. Right down on the street corner. Next to 
normal other buildings next to an apartment building and a jewelry store in Kroger. There's this other building that looks just like all of the other buildings. It's made of brick. It's got a nicely paved parking lot with nice straight white lines. There's not like demonic symbols on the outside. There's not blood splattered on the walls. There's people in nice cars pulling up into the parking lot. It looks great. They've got a nice sign out front that's purple and white and very inviting. And it's called Planned Parenthood, which sounds, sounds like a good thing, right? I actually remember one time when I was a kid, I don't remember how old I was, but I remember my mom making a disparaging comment about Planned Parenthood. I don't even remember what she said, but I could tell she spoke about it negatively. And as a kid, I remember hearing her say it and being confused and thinking, well, Planned Parenthood, that sounds like a good thing. Right? And that's, that was my reaction just from the name. It's perfectly calculated and veiled to be something that's helpful to you. To be something that you shouldn't be afraid of. To be something that's not to be worried about. That they're just here to help. But like a lion that is a master of hiding in its habitat so that it can, at the unexpected moment, pounce on its prey. This is what Planned Parenthood is and all of these organizations that mask themselves and camouflage themselves in language of helping people and language of, you know, doing a service to the community. And it's a bunch of lies. And don't be deceived by the appearance, okay? It's all perfectly calculated to deceive and to draw in the afflicted and the poor into the net. Notice who the victims of the afflicted are. The poor. The victims of the wicked. The poor and the afflicted. And so who are the poor and the afflicted? Well, you know where these clinics are set up. You've heard and you read. They're set up in minority neighborhoods, in inner city. Ever since its inception, that's what Planned Parenthood has been. It's been a place to wipe out blacks, to take advantage of minorities who don't have a lot of money and who are in a tough spot. You know, just on Thursday, we were over there and we, a Hispanic couple pulled up and walked into the building and I cried out to the man Did he not murder his child? I couldn't even tell if he understood me. Usually people will clearly ignore you or um, say something back, but it's just kind of a blank stare. It's possible he didn't understand what I was saying. And these are the types of people that Planned Parenthood draws in to its net. Are those who are deceived and afflicted and are drinking in the lies of our culture. The children are a curse. That it's better to do it this way. And those are the ones, those are the victims who are going to participate in the murder. Think about the victims themselves. What is more vulnerable than a child in its mother's womb? Some of you are holding children now. It's children like those children that you're holding that get torn apart limb from limb. And it's called a health service. He crouches. He bows down. He gets ready to pounce. 
in the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. This verse, verse 10, these words, if you look, in, depending on your Bible, you, there's a bunch of footnotes because it's not really clear what some of these words mean in the original language. He crouches, he bows down. Obviously, that's drawing out what a lion does, crouching and getting ready for the pounce. But there's a way it can be translated that it's, he, he humbles himself. He makes himself humble and low. He puts on this appearance of being humble and low and helpful. And that's what this is, is calling it a service to people. Calling it, you know, we're just helping. They crouch, they bow down, and then pounce. And so this describes the wicked today. This chapter of Scripture does. And you say, okay, I get it, this describes the wicked today, but surely this isn't how we should pray today. I mean, you're right, abortion is really bad, but that doesn't mean we should be praying this prayer necessarily. You know, in David's time, under the light of the Old Covenant, under the theocratic government of the Old Testament people of Israel, it made sense for David to pray this way. But we live in a gospel age, the gospel age, and things are different. We're supposed to love our enemies, right? But I want to show you that this psalm, Psalm 10, is a prayer driven by fully formed faith in God. In other words, this is the prayer of a Christian, not just of King David. This is and should be the prayer of a Christian. Um, And I need to point this out because we are reluctant when we come to this to pray the psalm. We come to it in our Bible reading and we recoil and we immediately hyper-spiritualize it and say something like, Yeah, I do hope that God breaks Satan's arm, right? We want to make it something that's just kind of in the clouds and isn't touching us right around us. Yeah, I hope that God crushes the spiritual forces of darkness. And surely this is speaking to those things. But if you're honest with yourself, that doesn't satisfy what's going on here. And this is pervasive that we're uncomfortable with this. Even some of our favorite writers, I'll use C.S. Lewis as an example. This is what he says about the psalmist calling down God's judgment. He says... The reaction of the psalmist to injury, to affliction, though profoundly natural, is profoundly wrong. Okay, that's the prevailing wisdom is that the psalmist is wrong in thinking these things. In telling God, asking God to break the arm of the wicked. That was the psalmist going a little too far. But I want to encourage you that that is a relatively new thing. As I read old, faithful, gospel-centered men like Charles Spurgeon and John Calvin, and they comment on this passage, and they just don't even ask the question of if a Christian should pray this psalm. It's like, well, of course, it's, it's God's word. We pray this. <laughs> they don't even consider if it's, like, sinful for us to pray the Bible. And why would you consider if it's sinful to pray, pray the Bible? Um... And so we, but we do need to understand what's going on here and what we mean when we ask God to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. I mean, aren't we just supposed to pray that everyone will just get saved? Isn't that the loving thing that we're supposed to do? Does, aren't we just supposed to pray that God will have mercy on everyone? How can it be right to pray God's judgment on someone? I want to give three ways that help us understand this. One is, first of all, it's merciful 
for God to crush oppressors for the sake of the oppressed. Okay? This is what we must not forget is do whatever it takes to open your eyes to the reality of the oppressed, of the children, of the blood that stains clinic room floors and dumpsters and millions and millions of souls cast out. Do whatever it takes to open your eyes to that reality that there is real oppression, arguably the greatest humanitarian oppression in the history of the world in terms of the numbers that have been slaughtered. Open your eyes to that and realize it would be a mercy for God to save all of those oppressed and destroy the oppressors. Second, as we ask God to break the arm of the wicked, in this case, wouldn't it be wonderful for God to break the arm of the abortionist in Bloomington? So that children, at least for a time, would survive who would have died? Would that not be a mercy of God? And would that not be a mercy of God to the abortionist himself to just break his arm? This is a merciful prayer (laughs) that we ask God to be kind and gentle by breaking an arm, by causing sickness. This would be a righteous thing for God to do and merciful. And further than this, God often uses the breaking of arms, the suffering under diseases, He often uses pain and suffering to bring us to repentance. Some of you have experiences that God has used an experience with death or an injury or something very real and visceral in your life that he has brought into your life to show you what your sin is. It may be an injury that came as a result of your sin and God has used that to call you to repent of that sin. And to walk in righteousness. And that injury that God gave to you is a mercy to you. And when we ask God to cause injury, it can be a mercy of God to use that to bring sinners to repentance. And the third thing in terms of praying this and seeing that it is merciful. I want to just remind us that we must never stop praying and God never calls us to stop praying that he will be just. Never does God call us to stop praying that he will be just. We never ever ask him not to pour out his wrath. In fact, it is impossible for God not to pour out his wrath on sin. Even if you pray for the merciful salvation of the abortionist, think about what you're really praying for. Are you praying for God to refrain from pouring out his, out his wrath? Are you asking him to set aside his justice for a moment for the sake of this person you want to come to be saved? No, God never sets aside his justice. He never sets aside his wrath. God is angry with the wicked every day. Did you hear it? It was hard not to hear. They sang it to us over and over and over again. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day, is what the NASB says. God never forgets his justice. He will crush sin. 
He will pour out the just penalty for it. Unless you think still that this is just an Old Testament idea, I want to read you some passages from the New Testament, real brief passages from the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians, he says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. 2 Timothy 4 Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Galatians 1 says, but even if we, this is Paul talking to the Galatians, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And then he repeats it. He says, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now I want you to notice some things about these passages that I just read. First is that judgment always resides with God. We see this. Romans 12 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This, that is the reality of this psalm. The psalmist is not taking out his own personal vengeance on his enemies. He's calling on God. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. This is God's work that he judges righteously. And this actually is the comfort of a Christian. That we know that God judges righteously. In Romans 12, where it says, it's actually quoting the Old Testament, but it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's in a passage in the context of forgiveness, that we are to forgive each other and each other's sins. And the ground for our forgiveness of each other's sins is knowing that God, in the right, in the end, judges rightly. The only way I can really forgive someone's sin against me is when I know that I don't have to worry about determining where their sin begins and stops, but I can trust God to judge rightly. And that is our comfort, to put judgment in God's hands. But the other thing I want you to notice about, particularly the Galatians passage, did you notice Paul, he says, even if we should preach to you a gospel contrary, if any man is preaching to you a gospel, even me, if I come to you and preach a false gospel, let me be accursed. Paul does not discriminate with his calling down of God's judgment. He puts himself under the same standard. He judges himself by the same standard that he judges others by. And that is scriptural in accordance with Christ's teaching. And this is why... You must pray this way. Psalm 10, this is the last thing. You must call on God to break the arm of the wicked. And here's why. You are the wicked. Okay? Do you, Father, fantasize about what it would be like to be free of your wife and children? You murder your family. Do you, mother, envy the prosperity of the wicked? Do you envy the freedom of the mother who murders her child? If you do, you murder your children. Look in your own heart and examine the depths of its wickedness. 
Are you reluctant to condemn the wickedness of others because you've refused to condemn your own? Honestly examine your heart. Ask yourself if you are any different than those who have physically murdered their children. Calvin says, If the Lord gave loose rein to the mind of each man to run riot in his lusts, there would doubtless be no one who would not show that in fact every evil thing for which Paul condemns all nature is most truly to be met in himself. There are all sorts of things that restrain us from sin, that cause us from going to certain lengths. But the wickedness that is around us is within us as well. And I think this gets at the heart of why we're unwilling to pray these prayers of judgment, of imprecation on God's enemies. It's because we have a small view of our own sin. When it comes down to it, I'm comfortable praying God's judgment on someone else's sin. I'm uncomfortable, sorry, praying God's judgment on someone else's sin because I haven't fully acknowledged what my sin deserves. What Christ received, or what I say he received, on my behalf. If you have a small view of your sin, you will be unwilling to believe that anyone deserves this sort of punishment from God. But remember, if you're a Christian, remember what Christ paid for your guilt. His body was broken, crushed. God did not just overlook your sin. Your sin had a price to pay. And that price was the price of murder and adultery and blasphemy. That price was the cross. When we ask God to save a sinner, we must remember that we're not ever asking him simply to forget about his justice, to forget about his wrath. That would not be in his character. No, when you ask God to save someone, remember, realize that you're asking him to pour out his full wrath on sin. But when you pray for the repentance of someone, you're asking God to destroy their sin and punish it. But you're asking him to do it on his son and crush his son instead of them. When you come to God to ask forgiveness, do you remember that you're asking God to nail your sin into the hands of Jesus Christ? Do you remember that you're asking God to heal you by the stripes on Jesus' back? When you come to God seeking forgiveness, do you acknowledge that this is the penalty that you deserve? Psalm 10. And that God did pour out that wrath in a real way, in a full and complete way, on Christ, his own beloved son. We must acknowledge this reality. And I think this is why we are unwilling to pray these psalms. Because we don't see our own sin as deserving what Christ bore for us. We don't see our own murder and adultery and cursing and unforgiveness and blasphemy as deserving of this sort of treatment from God. But the reality is, God must crush us to bring us to repentance. You either be crushed under his judgment and suffer for your sins eternally, or you will be crushed and brought to repentance. Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You must die to be saved. 
I'm going to finish by reading a parable, one of Jesus' parables, um, that talks about this reality. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's talking about himself. He is the stone that was rejected. And he says to them, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone, the cornerstone Christ, will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. There's only two options for you. It's to fall on Christ, to be crucified with him and have his inheritance, Or to bear the wrath of the Lamb when he returns and when you stand before him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would be kind to us. We pray that you would end the wickedness of child sacrifice and murder going on around us in our own communities. We pray that you would forgive us for the blood that is on our own hands pray that you would open our eyes to the reality to see our sin, to understand it and to flee from it and to fall on Christ. Please put our old self to death and raise us to new life that we might walk in righteousness and proclaim your truth and love the afflicted and the oppressed. We pray that you would be kind and merciful to us and crush us in Christ, we pray, so that we might walk with him. For eternity, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.